Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Christ and Culture podcast. I'm Ken Keithley, and I direct the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture, located on the campus of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. My guest today is Dr. John Hammett, and our topic today is theological anthropology. Dr. Hammett has served as both a pastor and a missionary, and is currently serving as senior professor of systematic theology at Southeastern, where he occupies the John L. Dagg Chair of Systematic Theology. Dr. Hammett has written several books, including the book Biblical Foundations for Baptist Churches, a Contemporary Ecclesiology, and we discuss with him that book in another episode, so you don't want to miss out on that conversation as Dr. Hammett shares insights on the doctrine of the church, especially in in the aftermath of the pandemic. Dr. Hammett, thank you for joining us again today. My pleasure. You do write a great deal about ecclesiology, but your other area of interest in which you study, teach, and write is theological anthropology. When people hear the word anthropology, they may think of someone who's digging up bones in, uh, in, in the desert somewhere in the Sahara. What do you understand theological anthropology to be? What is the discipline? Well, it's the study of humans, who we are, how God has made us, what God has made us for, all the things regarding our very nature as human beings. So the qualifier theological anthropology that would be distinct from anthropology in a state university would be the emphasis of understanding uh, humans through the lens of the biblical witness? Exactly. So then what is a human being uh, according to Scripture? Well, the, the most important phrase that's been used for that in Scripture, and I think is the key issue in theological anthropology, is the idea of humans are those made in the image of God. So whereas a, a secular anthropologist might discuss humans in terms of anatomy or ability or speech or reason or those types of things, uh, for a, a theological anthropologist, the key issue is image of God. We are those created in the image of God. So when you say made in the image of God, this would seem just by the way you say it, that you understand the image to be some, somewhere in the person's makeup, that, uh, that you may have a, a substantive understanding of the divine image. There are a number of, of perspectives. Would you want to uh, describe them for us and perhaps give your take on which one of those positions uh, is your position? You mentioned the, the most dominant option historically has been what we call substantive or structural. So the image is something in human makeup, some capacity, ability, quality uh, that defines humans, sets them apart, those types of things. So that's a, a historically. Now, sadly, one thing I think is not very uh, viable is the idea that reason, uh, human reason, is that which sets us apart. 
for a reason I'll explain in a second. So that's been a very important one historically. I don't think it's the best way to go. The second basic approach has been functionally, image is something that we do. Because we're made guys and we can do something that others can't do. And the idea in Genesis 1 is dominion over nature. And so a number of, especially those in the Old Testament scholarship, focused on that idea. Humans are those who exercise dominion. Sometimes they're seen at the background of representing God, uh, those types of things. Uh, I think that's more the consequence and not the content of the image. And so I disagree with functional approaches. There's a third category called relational. And I think this one is morphing toward a a relational slash structural. Because some say relation, since God has made us uh, in confrontation with other humans and with God. And so Karl Barth was famous for saying, and God makes us in this confrontation, male and female in Genesis 1. It's interesting, it doesn't say just one human there, male and a female in relationship. Well, but Barth denied that this applies to any capacity or ability that we have. Others have said, no, if we have, relate that implies a relational capacity. And that's where I've come down. And so here's my approach to the image of God. I look at the, the, the major passages on that Genesis 1 is something true of all humans. This is constitutive of, of what makes a human a human, and therefore it must be something true of all humans. And that's where reason becomes questionable. So does someone with dementia lose the image of God? Someone with uh, severe disability, they not an image bearer of God because they lack that rational ability. Is this a a degree type of thing. So I think reason is, is not the best way to understand human distinctiveness. Genesis 9 says the image of God makes us very valuable. You can't kill a human being and uh, not be guilty of a heinous crime. James 3 says you couldn't, you shouldn't even curse someone made in God's image. So this gives us dignity, respect, worthiness. But then in the New Testament, it talks about the image being renewed. So this is something that can be damaged by sin, be renewed in the process of Christian conversion, even transformed and eventually conformed to the image of Christ. So I put all those clues together, and I think, what is it that's true of all humans, even those in dementia, even those with severe disabilities, gives humans value and dignity and worth, something that was damaged by the fault of being renewed in the Christian life? I think the capacity for relationship with God. Yeah, I find it always interesting whenever someone says, I hold to the relational view, and I'll say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, God created us with the capacity to to have a relationship with him. And I'm thinking to myself, well, that seems to be a description of our makeup, which would, would lend it, would fit better into some type of substantive view. Both you and I, uh, hold to the substantive view, but I have to admit that I'm hard-pressed to identify exactly where in the human person what that means and how, how that's to be understood. Be- as you pointed out, there's been a number of candidates through the centuries where someone has pointed either to our ability to reason or some other a type of exceptional ability that humans are uh, supposed to have. You also point out that among a significant number of Old Testament uh, professors and, and scholars, there is a renewed 
uh, emphasis or a number of adherents to the functional position because of the, the, the way those terms for image and likeness in the Old Testament referred to the images that represented the king throughout the empire. And I understand the force of those arguments. But you, you point out that we're not building a theology of the Imago Dei just on the Old Testament. It's something that is all through Scripture, uh, both Old and New, and the New Testament seems to give a Christological emphasis to the divine image. So the divine image would be the distinctive thing about theological anthropology, then, if I understand what you're saying. It would be the center, not the only distinctive aspect, but at least the center of that. So then you made the point that when God made us in his image, male and female, made he them. Um, so this would seem to indicate that gender is an essential feature of the human person. This is where things become quite controversial. How then does our understanding of being created by God and the creational order inform our understanding of gender and sexuality? Yeah, those are, are two important words to distinguish, gender and sex. And so because of, of our context in terms of how some people understand those words, let me give you my understanding as I speak these things. Let's talk about sex in terms of male and female, biological distinct, those types of things, those types of uh, obvious characteristics. Some use gender as a more of a social construct for the things we associate with, with masculinity and femininity. And, and those things uh, have less clarity and pronouncement in Scripture. Scripture definitely says we're male and female, and that was good. And there's some important for that in terms of procreation and the context for marriage and those types of things. And so the Bible does describe male and femaleness. Going beyond that into to masculine and feminine, there's not nearly as much specificity in the New Testament or the, or the Bible as a whole as there is in some cultural understanding. And so some things may we may be deriving more from observation than revelation. And again, I think those things can be useful. I'm hesitant to how far we push them. I got through reading a book called Why Men Don't Iron, you know. And so there, there's some other there's cultural things we see out there that may be useful, especially in relating to the opposite sex. But I hesitate to push them too far. Yeah, I. whenever I was a young man, there was a well-known popular book called Real Men Don't Eat Quiche. Well, I do. <laughs> I, I enjoy it. I, I enjoy it quite a bit. But this does bring up the, the question of gender roles within society, uh, within the church, and within the home. As an institution, we are committed to complementarianism, the, the Danvers Statement. Uh, Dr. Hammett, would you, would you briefly, for our listener, uh, define what is complementarianism, egalitarianism, what are the strengths and perhaps the shortcomings of those definitions? Well, again, uh, to begin with complementarian, we want to begin with affirming our equal worth and value as image bearers of God, but we don't see that as being in conflict with the idea that we can do different roles because they're not higher and lower roles. They're not roles that make you a better person than someone else. They're simply different complementary roles. And so we think there's evidence in Scripture that God intends that for a Christian home and a Christian church. 
I don't see room for applying that to all realms of society. Well, you know, that, that really does bring up a, an ongoing, I won't say debate, maybe debate, but at least conversation within complementarianism. And, in fact, some have now coined the expressions narrow complementarianism, broad complementarianism, in which the narrow version would be understood to relate only to uh, the matter of the home and uh, the polity of a church, whereas those who would have um, a broader view, they would say, no, this is the relationship between uh, men and women as a whole. It would seem to me that they were running the risk of leaving complementarianism and going over into patriarchalism. Uh, give us your understanding of, I think you were, you were starting to talk about that, how would you understand complementarianism to work out in the New Testament? What is the biblical parameters of how we're to understand this? I think that it begins with the, the issue of the home, and of course the classic example there is Christ and the church. And again, Christ and the church uh, should be seen as having a complementary relationship rather than an egalitarian relationship. I, I don't think the church can ever be equal to Christ. And so I think there's a distinction there. And so I, I think this is the place where we start to build the roles of husbands and wives in the church. Now again, Christ is obviously self-sacrificing love, self-giving love, and so that is the role for the, the husband to follow. Uh, I sometimes cringe when we use the language of headship without qualifying it as Christ-like headship. And then the wife's role is to be that of, of uh, submissive to the, to the, to the head and the, and the, as, as the church is to Christ, but not denying uh, the responsibilities and the giftedness and the importance of, of the wife or the church in that relationship. So I think that's the primary relationship scripture addresses. I think that then fleshes itself out in the polity of a local church, where one of the requirements for being an elder is to be uh, a good leader in your home. So it seems to me that, that that role in the, the church is built upon that in the home. Going beyond that to education, society, politics, business, all the other realms of life, I'm more leery of because we're not given scriptural warrant to do so. And so I want to be careful that I go as far as scripture goes, but going beyond where scripture takes us, I want to be careful. Is there a good reason to go to extrapolate beyond these roles into other areas of, of society? I haven't seen that. So, as we could see, theological anthropology, it, it impacts uh, a number of important areas in life and in the church. Uh, another area, uh, changing the subject a, a little bit now, and still in the area of theological anthropology, when we talk about what constitutes a human person, uh, and what are the components or the makeup of a human person. Uh, you and I have been involved in meetings in which there was a, the discussion uh, about the brain and the mind and the body and the spirit, uh, whether or not we should understand uh, the human person in singular terms, some type of monistic understanding, versus some type of dualistic understanding. Would you describe for our listener what is the difference between monism and dualism? You might even go ahead and say then there's those who hold to a trichotomous understanding, but particularly as it relates to the mind-brain question. Well, those who, uh, within Christian circles, who want to 
uh, advocate a monistic view of human nature are focusing on uh, the uh, increasing overlap between the brain and the mind. Things that we thought were associated with the mind are now finding brain substrates that are involved in those things. So different regions of the brain that are associated with different mental states and things that we thought about the mind. So there, there's that. There's the idea in biblical circles that all the different words that we mentioned, mind, soul, spirit, are looking at the whole person from a different point of view. So they're denying any segmentation, partitions in human beings. And so that, and then there's a philosophical discussion about it. So th those types of reasons being been pushing people toward mo more monistic understandings. But I think that biblically, there's a pretty strong case for some type of ontological dualism. We may function holistically, but on a, an ontological level, there's a material aspect of human nature that we call the body. There's a non-material aspect that we can call mind, spirit, soul. There's some overlap between those terms, and uh, so I don't want to make any, any hard, fast distinctions there, but at least those two elements, and I think the strongest support for this is what happens to a person at the end of their earthly life. Do they cease to exist until the resurrection of the body? Well, it seems to me that there, there are several passages that seem to speak pretty clearly to uh, what we call the intermediate state, a, a time between the death of the body and the resurrection of the body, when you exist. Uh, one of the, the passages that means clearest to me is what Jesus said to the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. And again, that you is not going to be the thief's body, so there's some you that can be abstracted from the body of that thief, and likewise with Jesus. So there, there are some other verses where Paul said, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And so the traditional Christian understanding has been that at the death of the body, we immediately enjoy fellowship with God in a place called paradise. You could go present in heaven, whatever. And so uh, that requires a continued existence. And so Hebrews 12 mentions in the heavenly Jerusalem, they're the spirits of the righteous who have been made perfect there. So I affirm the, the, this intermediate uh, state in which we exist in a disembodied form, which implies or requires some type of dualism. Because we know what happens to the body at death. It decays. If we have an existence, it is an extra body experience. Yeah, I hear what my monistic brethren are saying, and I get the point. Uh, you know, we, you and I have, have interacted with, with some who argue that the mind is an extension of the brain to the extent it's basically of the same substance. And they're undoubtedly right that the human person is constituted in such a way that our minds now operate within the context of the brain, therefore brain injuries affect us. Uh, someone has a stroke, uh, they have dementia, it changes their very personality. They're, 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 they seem like different persons. So I, I get that. That seems very, that, that's a very powerful point that they make. And it's also, I think, uh, significant, as they, they point out, that there's not a whole lot about the intermediate state. The resurrection is the emphasis. I always respond by saying, well, that's because it is intermediate. By definition, it's only temporary. And I like how you point out that, yes, we survive death, but it's a truncated state. The Bible never presents being disembodied as a good thing. Yeah. You, you know, uh, 
Paul seems to describe uh, absent from the body to be a state of nakedness. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, the good thing about it is you're present with the Lord. That, that more than makes up for it. That, that's, that's true. Uh, however, and I think this is such an important point whenever you talk about the intermediate state, is the question of the continuing self. Some of those who argue for, I mean, in fact, anyone who argues for a monistic understanding would have to argue for something that looks like soul sleep. That, that if, the, if the soul is simply part of the body, or the mind is, that, that then whenever a person dies for that period of time, they would have to cease to exist. And of course, what they would say is, well, the Lord brings you back together you know, in the resurrection. My thinking on that, and I've said this to those people in person and in print, yeah, but is that me? Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I almost wonder if I've been replaced with my clone. Uh, you know, so, so I find the, the notion of the continuing self to be something of great importance. Which brings us to the next thing that, that we want to talk about, and that is those things that uh, human origins. Mm-hmm. You and I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture and that Genesis gives us divine revelation. And so, therefore, we believe in a, in a historical Adam and Eve and that they are the special creation of God. And yet, you and I are both very comfortable with the standard scientific models that the world is actually billions of years old and that this poses no challenge to a proper understanding of the book of Genesis. What are our options out there for understanding uh, the origin of humanity if someone wants to be some type of old earth creationist or even they want to, to believe in some type of speciation that uh, transitional species occur, help us to think wisely and say, okay, here are the, the boundaries or here, here are the things to remember. Here's the things that we must affirm to, in order to have a biblical understanding of human origins. What would that look like? Well, there, I think you've, you've asked me two questions. One is the options out there. And again, I would affirm that a live option is a young earth uh, position with special creation of, of humans. Uh, another option is an old earth uh, creation where uh, God allowed the, the earth to develop over billions of years but then intervened to create a special couple as the first humans and uh, then maybe even I would allow for some uh, some use of, of God using some type of process to develop the physical anatomy of that, that but some, with some special intervention to make them image of God bearers and those types of things. So that's one of some options. But in terms of the essentials I think the essentials are historical Adam and Eve. Again, I don't see how we can avoid that from the whole testimony of Scripture. I mean, Adam's in a, a, chrono- a genealogy in, in First Chronicles, for goodness sake. Yeah. yeah. That well, we have in Luke's gospel as, as well. So it, well, it, and it starts with Jesus and goes back to Adam. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't. You know, he he actually starts with, with you know, and and traces it the other direction. Yeah. So it's very difficult to just simply dismiss it flippantly. Not to mention the first Adam, second Adam, parallel. So, so those types of things I think are undeniable. So historical Adam and Eve, special creation of God. This is where I think, again, my understanding of the image of God comes in. Because I do think the image of God, I want to, if I'm going to localize that, you mentioned the difficulty of finding a, a special capacity. I think the thing called spirit in Scripture is especially associated with relationship with God. Romans 8, 16 says, Our spirit 
Various with, with God's spirit, they were God's children, and so uh, Whereas the word soul is used for animals and humans, only, the only humans are spoken of as having this thing called spirit. So I, I think uh, that's where, where God must intervene to make us, in, I don't see how that could happen apart from God's intervention. So I think special creation there of humans. I, mean, I think the idea of them being at the, what they call the headwaters of humanity, so there's some type of connection between them and the rest of humanity, either uh, inheritance or representative type of, of understanding of those types of things, along with his, the historical creation, historical fall. That we were originally good and became evil. That wasn't how we were created. I think those things were important. The whole biblical storyline, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, seems to require an original goodness of creation that then suffered fall. What we've seen from in just a few minutes of our conversation is that our understanding of humanity from a biblical and theological perspective has profound impact on how we do ethics and how we, we understand humans in today's world. And so Dr. Hammett, thank you so much for sharing with us. My name is Ken Keefley. I direct the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture, and you've been listening to the Christ and Culture podcast. We're wishing you a good day. <laughs>